Hello. Welcome to another episode of Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. If you've been listening to our previous episodes, thank you very much. If you haven't, we have four episodes that are available on our platform on Captivate FM and also on our website, so you can check those out. Today we have really not just an important guest to talk about an important topic, but a very timely topic. As of this recording, we are a little less than a week from the 25th COP. This is the major climate action convening that is now taking place in Madrid and also the 25th instance of this convening. And so there's a lot of import about this particular gathering, both because it is the 25th, but also because we are now entering the decade of implementation for the Sustainable Development Goals. And of course, that includes advancing climate action. And with me today is David Jackson. He is the director of the Local Development Finance Practice with the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. He also has been the driver of a fantastic climate adaptation program that's also managed by tremendous talent, including a friend of ours, Sophie DeConnick, who will be representing us at COP next week. And that is our local climate adaptive living facility, or locale, which we will get to. But we're going to start at the top, and we're going to talk about an area of climate action that you don't often hear about, and it's really the importance of local government authorities. When we talk about climate, we really seem to focus a lot on central governments and the willingness of central governments. And there's a huge conversation that hasn't quite reached the level that it needs to reach. And that's why we have David with us today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, David. It's a real pleasure to be here. I appreciate that. So let's just get right to it. Just share with our audience, why is it not just that local government authorities, not just that they're important to the cause of climate action, they are in fact singularly positioned to drive climate action, specifically as it relates to adaptation, which we can discuss. But just talk about what is it about local government authorities, municipalities, cities, towns, that really, when resourced properly, they can be effective drivers of climate action? Well, thank you very much indeed. This is exactly the point. There's a lot of talk about greenhouse gases, mitigation, but the experts will tell you that, like it or not, we better get used to rapidly changing weather patterns. Mm-hmm. And we need to look around us and we see it. So what does that mean? It means it gets hotter, it gets colder, it rains more, and it rains in different times of the year. Now, all of those things, when it comes to you and I walking down the street, how we will interact with this changing climate, sure. The responsibilities and the mandates are with local governments, Mm -hmm. particularly for adaptation, also for mitigation. If you think of water, the water storage, the drainage, the irrigation, the access to water, local governments in both rural and urban areas play a large role in managing water resources one way or another. If you think of land use planning, what gets built where, that is a local government mandate. If you think of construction, construction licenses, buildings, that is a local government mandate. So when it comes to the built environment and also when it comes to rural areas, in order to adapt meaningfully to this changing climate, which we will need to do to survive on this planet, local governments is where the action is. Now, let me give you an example. It has actually always been like that because throughout history, 
the human race has adapted to different climates and largely through the built environment. And the built environment and its management is what local governments do. Now we have nation states, we have ministries, ministries of environment. They were set up to be regulatory bodies to define the rules and the parameters for action on the environment. Now, unfortunately, with climate finance, they have become bloated and become implementing agencies. So climate finance is implemented through projects managed by regulatory bodies, whereas those that have the day-to-day -day mandate for the very specific concrete actions and investments for you and I and everybody else to survive climate change, particularly adaptation, are unfunded for this mandate. That is why local governments are the key to implementing the national adaptation plans in the Paris Accords. So in fact, I mean, it's a scenario where capital is not meeting competency because the competencies that we would need to really drive appropriate climate action are basically undercapitalized. Absolutely. And urban, rural, rich country, poor country, it's the same problem. Right. And what is so interesting about this local government climate lobby is the north, south, east, west divisions breakdown. Okay. You see these rapidly growing cities, whether they're in Africa, Asia, or Latin America, facing the same matters. How can you organize the infrastructure of a rapidly growing city? And urbanization is rampant in parts of the world sure. so that it can adapt to this rapidly changing climate. Right. That requires purposeful investment. It won't happen by accident. Can we stop for a second and touch on that? Because we talk about urbanization and the reality is that is a trend where you're seeing localities really become the financial and economic centers of gravity in the way that we would have expected of nations in the past. So if you could make that connection between urbanization, climate action, but then also the challenges as it relates to accessing climate finance. Right. No, thank you so much indeed. Yes. I mean, if you look at China, which is a country that has now kind of completed a cycle of investments, at one point, the infrastructure was 50% of its GDP. Right. And that was largely urban infrastructure. And if you look at Africa, the rate of urbanization in Africa is extremely rapid right now. These towns and cities are growing before our very eyes. So they are becoming the growth poles, the economic poles. They are becoming the entities that are actually producing an increasing amount of the GDP of these countries. Yet they are not able to access the finance needed for their required investments. I mean, a very useful way of looking at this is to think of a large uh, city in a small country. I mean, Benin is a good example, whereas Cotonou, the capital of Benin, produces most of Benin's GDP and is a rapidly growing urban center. The government of Benin, for example, can borrow with a sovereign guarantee, access to the African Development Bank, has a monopoly of taxation, and can, broadly speaking, access capital markets at a price far below that which the city of Cotonou mm -hmm. can access those markets. Yet the city of Cotonou is the entity that is actually responsible for a lot of the day-to-day -day action required, not only to adapt to climate change, but also to improve living standards, invest in vocational training, etc., etc. So this is the mismatch. And just to, if we wind back in time, we will see that prior to the nation state and prior to the colonial era, in fact, an awful lot of governance was around cities and urban areas. 
and you often had the city-states with earlier form of municipal governance that was fixing a lot of these problems. And then in the rural areas, you had a slightly different arrangement with a different set of problems. But so the imperative of urban organization has always been with us. And it has often been a sub-national or a non-national system of organization. So it's interesting, as particularly when you discuss this in the context of finance, because we can also talk about the finance breakdown between mitigation and adaptation. And I just want to go back to the point that you started with about the criticality of embracing adaptation given where we are in the game. Now, the question is, are we seeing climate finance breaking down in a way where adaptation measures are uh, getting the financial support that they should be getting relative to mitigation? Or are we not seeing that particular balance that we need in your opinion? So there is funding for adaptation, probably not enough because maybe the penny has not yet dropped. You know, we better start adapting fast. Some cities are taking it into their own hands uh, to do this. Now, of course, in mitigation, it's all about pricing of carbon. That's the only way that it's going to be done, really. It's just in the same way that in other industries, there is an implicit subsidy. There needs to be an implicit tax on carbon. And until that happens, I don't see any future in mitigation in the bigger picture. It needs to be so much cheaper to do a wind farm or a solar farm because the coal-fired power station just has a tax on it. Sure. I mean, already technology is making the wind and solar cheaper, sure. but then somebody needs to put their hand on the scales there, just as happened in other industries in the history of economic growth. Or at the very least, what we could say is that there's no feasible path to effective climate action that is solely dependent on mitigation, that there has to be an adaptation element to it, too. I'm saying at the very least. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's too late. Between the two of us, if you were to come to the Paris COP and talk to the scientists, yeah. okay, between us and the audience, if you'd listen to the scientists, doesn't take you long to look at it. It is too late to prevent global warming to around about 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius by 2100. Mm -hmm. Now, exactly how that will change the weather, nobody knows. But it will significantly change the weather patterns. Even if you know, we start to hit the targets we've set for ourselves now, and we are well behind those targets. In South Korea, as I understand it, every single new development in a town or a city or the rural area has to have adaptation or resilience, however you want to call it, to two degrees Celsius baked in to the building, to the planning, etc. Already the insurance industry is waking up to this. In some countries, it's not possible to get a building or land insured if it's in a certain place because that's not going to be there for the future. So just to be clear, they're mainstreaming this into their insurance markets. That's right. The, the insurance market is ahead of the curve. Right. You know, the betting markets are often ahead of the curve sure. and insurance is essentially about betting. Yeah. It's about odds. So, yes, the nexus really is the local government convening power, the local government mandate, the local government responsibility, the climate imperative and the urbanization imperative, meaning that local governments have to be seen not as either troublesome irritants or passive beneficiaries. They have to be seen as actors, agents, in organizing our collective survival on the planet. And I am not being dramatic there. That is what the cold science is telling us. Sure. 
the public opinion has not yet caught up. It's all about the Overton window. So from that, I actually would love to transition into locale. And if you could unpack that program for us in terms of how it looks to mainstream climate adaptation and resilience into the budgeting for LDC municipalities. No, thank you so much. So locale is uh, for the least developed countries by and large and for their urban and rural local governments. And the premise of locale is that if you are a small district, for example, in Bhutan, which is one of the countries where locale has gone mainstream, you're up there in the Himalayas, and you're already seeing this climate change happening. The rainy season in Bhutan is shorter, but more intense. And if you've ever seen a picture of Bhutan, it's got these very steep valleys with these rice paddies and terraces all the way down. So they're becoming washed away. The roads are becoming washed away because with a shorter rainy season, a more intense rainy season, the flash flooding is greater. And yet paradoxically, even though there is more rain, there is less water storage. And the local governments, the only way to solve this is not by one huge project. It's by multiple small investments organized locally, paid for locally, by the entities that are responsible for it. So they're organizing these micro reservoirs, these micro pools of water source that prevent the water from cascading down and that store it. They're raising the level of the bridges. They're improving the uh, building standards of the roads. They are transitioning to crops that grow better in the new climate away from crops that don't grow so well. Therefore, they need to build new storage facilities, new warehouses, new processing facilities for the new crops and even construct new value chains for these new crops. So what Locale does is it provides the local governments in Bhutan with an incremental increase in their annual capital grant of around about 20 to 25 percent, which has to be used to build the adaptation to climate change, to build These resilience are to climate change. Based. These are performance-based grants that you have to perform in terms of building your resilience in order to continue to receive the funding. So it's a performance-based grant, but the beauty of it is that is a grant which you can apply to your particular climate challenge. And let me explain to you how that works and how investors in locale can rest assured, sleep safely at night, knowing that their money is going to climate change. It works like this. Firstly, in each local government unit, there is a vulnerability assessment that basically outlines what is the vulnerability to climate change of this territory. And in Bhutan, it's very specific from one valley to the next. You can't do that for the whole country. It's ecosystem-based. Then the local government, based on this vulnerability, they design an investment menu as to how they're going to respond. So let's say an area of land is prone to increased flooding. You can either build the flood defenses or you can move away in somewhere else. They're both valid responses and they will both be on the investment menu. So the investment menu is comprised of valid responses to the vulnerability. And there you have a point of measurement. Is the vulnerability accurate? Are the items on the investment menu a valid response? You can measure that objectively. And then the grant comes through the mainstream intergovernmental fiscal transfer system. It's not seen as a project. They don't have to apply for it. There's no forms to fill in. There's no extra staff driving around in land cruisers using GPS. It's all inbuilt local people managing this extra money that comes down. And they use this extra money across all the local government units to respond to the investment menu, to pick one of those options and to reduce the vulnerability. And the beauty of locale is they can use it for lots of different things. They can mix and match as long as it responds to that investment menu item. And they can mix it with other money they have. 
and they can involve the private sector, other NGOs, other ministries, etc., other units. So it's beautiful, fungible money in that respect. But, and now here's the catch, at the end of the fiscal year, there is an audit by the National Audit Commission and the Ministry of Environment that comes and reviews the whole process. And this is where it's performance-based. Because if you have performed well and you have increased your resilience to that vulnerability against that measurable process, then you stay in the system and you might even get more money next year. But if you've used that money wastefully or you've used it to buy cars for the mayor, for example, then I'm sorry your local government just falls out of the system and has to do something, some kind of penance to get back in. Now, in each country where locale is negotiated... And how many countries is locale? 14 countries right now. In each country, because it's established as part of the system in the way I've described, you know, the criteria for falling out and the penance you have to do to get back in again varies from place to place. But this is all built on national intergovernmental fiscal transfer systems. But it has this third-party verification element that I've talked about. And the grant itself is performance-based although integrated into the local government system. So it is has very uh, low overheads before this reason. And what we are doing is we're helping countries get their local government ministries access to the Green Climate Fund to be able to take this to scale. And in the case of Bhutan, the European Union has already provided the government of Bhutan with money to implement locale across half of the country. And we see this as being a global mechanism the local governments in least developed countries to have resources to build adaptation to climate change. And just finally, it's a mechanism because who controls this system? Who is the boss? It is the countries themselves. They sit on the board, the locale board. It's usually the Ministry of Local Government or the Ministry of Environment that comes to the meetings. And the 14 countries control the mechanism chaired by the ambassador of Malawi to the United Nations, who is currently the head of the LDC group at the United Nations. Thank you for flagging that locale is also an access frontier into green climate funding for these localities. I want to switch to COP with our remaining questions. And just obviously, we're approaching COP 20 as of this recording, COP 25. We're about a week away from it. In your experience, looking back at previous COPs, to what extent has the local level climate action uh, risen up to be the priority topic of discussion that it should be? Interesting. So, of course, the Paris Agreement was negotiated between countries. Yes. And in some of the early drafts, which we were privy to, there was no mention of subnational administration, local government at all. Really? Because there's not something that comes to mind when central governments are negotiating between themselves. So, in fact, the least developed country group at the negotiations of the Paris Agreement was one of the vocal entities that actually managed to get local governments in to the Paris Agreement as one of the means of implementation. Local governments, provincial governments, regional governments, and subnational government entities. So that was an important thing. Now, whilst they are in there, the architecture of Paris doesn't really include them. You know, there is the Green Climate Fund, which again is the countries serve on its board Mm -hmm. and it's either accredits national entities, banks, ministries, or goes through the World Bank and UNDP and UNEP, United Nations Environment Programme. So that's pretty much a project-based entity that doesn't really see local governments as part of the picture. And also, of course, because once you have climate finance, you have a political economy of climate finance. 
and it's difficult for local governments to get their voice heard amongst the ministries of finance, the ministries of environment, and the big banks and the multilateral development agencies. Those are the big players yeah. in climate finance. However, having said all of that, due to the leadership of people like the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, and other mayors around the world, including entities like United Cities and Local Governments, C40, ICLE, there is a large local government lobby at the COP. And this becomes apparent, interestingly, where you have countries that are not really involved, such as the US. So you have a lot of US cities at the COP, whereas you have a small representation from the US government. And also countries where really the focus of what they need to do is around the local government. I mean, you have many countries where cities themselves are really facing existential problems. And these problems are highlighted through their delegations to the COP. But the COP is not a local government-friendly place. The other aspect I think I should mention regarding the COP, of course, is the conference of the parties, the parties to a convention. The Paris Agreement is the convention which they've all signed on to. And the focus is largely on this issue of greenhouse gases and mitigation. Now, in the last two or three COPs, this has started to change because the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, has started to highlight in its reports that, look, uh, we are the panel of scientists that advises this process, and we are telling you, watch out. This is actually an emergency. And the IPCC last year, in 2018, organized the Edmonton Conference of Cities and IPCC. And this was actually a breakthrough in the climate world because it was the first time that the scientists that the United Nations through the COP and the UNFCCC instruments have basically requested to be our conscience and our brains saw that they need to engage with cities if they really want to engage with the question of adaptation. So for me, that conference, IPCC Edmonton, was as important as the COPs. As the COP, yeah, okay. Because it sounds like there's been this convergence of, obviously, political consolidation and mobilization on the part of cities, the scientific community emphasizing the importance of localities in terms of climate action. And now the goal is just that global fora where really this can be amplified in a paradigm-shifting way. And and maybe that would be this COP. Maybe it'll be in yeah. a subsequent COP. So absolutely. So just maybe to conclude on that, I mean, the COP itself is not really going to lead to any paradigm shifting. It's not really the way it works. The COP itself will come up with a statement and it'll nudge things along. I think the paradigm shifting is starting to happen in terms of the global financial system. So we at United Nations Capital Development Fund, together with United Cities and Local Government, have recently initiated something called the International Municipal Investment Fund. And uh, we have launched a coalition for a global financial ecosystem that works for cities and local governments. And what we're looking to do is to create these architectural changes in the way that global finance works so that there is a pillar for cities in the global financial architect. And just to give you a brief example of this, of course, we all know it works very well for big business. They can move their capital around. They can limit their tax liabilities. As I mentioned earlier, central governments, governments as a whole, get a good slice out of the global financial architect, a monopoly of taxation and sovereign guarantees and very cheap access to capital markets. How to have a third pillar, which is all about local governments. 
And this is starting. And so I think this is where the action will be, developing now this third pillar of the global financial system, which of course is fiscal part of it. It means seeing tax sharing across the territory as part of our future. And the financial part of it in terms of how capital from the capital markets can be more accessible to local governments. So reforming the global financial ecosystem and to make it work for cities and local governments is actually a driver of appropriate climate action. It's the only way. It's the only way. For us to survive on this planet. I want to end on that, but I have two very, very quick questions, as powerful as a conclusion as that is, uh, just because this is what we have typically done with the previous shows, which is, could you just tell us briefly about your journey that brought you to UNCDF? Yes. So... My career really began in local government in London and kind of interested in geography, economics, the interface between geography and economics and working on local development, local economic development, etc. I then moved to a place called Beira in Mozambique. A civil war was coming to an end and they required uh, urban development experts, uh, local development experts, local government experts to rebuild the second city of Mozambique. So when I was there, Working on this whole process of rebuilding the second city of Mozambique, uh, there was a mission from UNCDF, and uh, they came to visit, and they said, well, we're actually looking at uh, setting up a local development fund because we believe that if Mozambique is going to rebuild itself, then, in fact, it's the local governments that are going to be a key part of that. And the civil war had destroyed large parts of the country, displaced large populations. And the central government was trying to get its act together to rebuild the fabric of society. And what UNCDF did, I was privileged and proud to support them in this, was say, if you want to rebuild the fabric of that society, you have to put the money and the decisions in these local communities and use local institutions, local state institutions, local government institutions as a way to bring the country back together. So you had former combatants arguing vociferously over the best way to spend a local investment fund on how to combat malaria. And that gave people something to argue about, some responsibility, some money at the local level and had a transformative effect. And you know, academics have written had a major effect in bringing that country back together. And that's when it became clear to me that local governments were not only important from the economic angle, the urbanization angle, etc., but also from the broader development angle. Local governments can be agents of development. So for me, UNCDF the center of excellence for local government finance that it has been over the last 25 years is a very comfortable home. It's fantastic. Last question. I think we don't often hear positive stories when it relates to climate action. A lot of times the successes are incremental, but they're real. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind ending on a note based on a success story or a hopeful story that you've seen in this space that can kind of establish for us a path for how we can get to appropriate climate action? Yes, I think there are two success stories I can give you. One of them goes back to this Bhutan sure. story. So in Bhutan, through simply raising the level of a bridge and reinforcing that bridge against all 
potential changes to the climate. I mean, it's actually now a pretty strong bridge. Then going back to that place a few years later, I've been able to see the dramatic effect this has had on economic development and social development because the bridge unites the fields on the one side of the river, the population on the other side of the river. was never a very good connection there. It was always too expensive to be able to maintain, to build it up properly. So they were always kind of patching it up each year. And the fact that trucks can now pass over that bridge has brought visible, measurable increase, economic prosperity and uh, livelihoods and social benefits too. And also a pride because it was a democratically elected government that decided after a discussion to use its resources to build that bridge. So the love that is given to that bridge, I mean, it sounds strange, is, 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 is something to behold. Sure. So, you know, it is a, that is a real tangible argument. And another one, a slightly different scale, is in the country of Bangladesh, where after a lot of discussion with government, they have agreed now to experiment uh, the potential for local governments to float some kind of bond on the domestic capital markets. And as you know, Bangladesh is a very urban country. It's a very low-lying country. And in doing this, in having the wisdom and the foresight to experiment, to allow or to work with the United Nations as a neutral broker to test this out, which is what UNCDF does, they may have actually landed on a way to sustainably finance the transformation that will be required in Bangladeshi cities if they're not to go underwater. So, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It can be done. It's a matter of seeing local governments as part of the solution and seeing that citizens united through a democratic process at the local government level is really a key element of humanity. A great way to end an important and timely conversation, not just because of COP25 next week, but because this is a critical challenge that impacts all of us now and into, again, this decade of implementation uh, for the SDGs. David Jackson, Director of the Local Development Finance Practice for UNCDF, thank you so very much for your time, and thank you for listening. Thank you. 